science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and I chat with you every Sunday afternoon here about recent happening in the world of science. We try to separate sense from nonsense and uh, hopefully also keep you out of the clutches of charlatans. Obviously, we cannot ignore COVID-19. It is with us. It's going to be with us for a while. And I will talk about it. I'll give you my opinion on the vaccine and about uh, spacing out the the doses. But uh, let's get started here today with something a little bit uh, lighter. This morning, I asked a question on the trivia show about why it was that some vintners in French orchards in the middle 1800s or so uh, would uh, put some toads under their vines in the vineyards and others allowed uh, chickens to roam around. Well, it seems that the toads and chickens didn't have much of an appetite for aphids. And these are the tiny insects that suck the nutrient-rich sap out of plants, and then they kill the plants. They're obviously the bane of horticulturists. Well, it turned out that back in those days, in the 1800s, a type of uh, aphid called phylloxera um, infested French vineyards. And uh, this caused a a huge uh, problem to the French wine industry. And some of these vintners thought that putting toads underneath the vines would be at least a partial solution, hoping that the creatures would dine on the little bugs and uh, the chickens were allowed to roam around so that they would peck away at the insects. Unfortunately, neither of those approaches worked and uh, neither did the use of pesticides which were available at that, that time. But finally, French winemakers Leo Laliman and Gaston Brazil found a solution to the phylloxera problem, and they put French wines back on French tables, and obviously the French population was greatly relieved. So there's a backstory here, of course, and an interesting one. Uh, Laliman and Basil were familiar with uh, accounts of the failure of French colonists in America to grow grape vines that they had brought with them from Europe. And uh, many of these colonists were in Florida, and of course they wanted to have French grapes and French wine, and they had actually brought with them samples of the vines that they, they planted. But uh, it didn't work. The vines did not thrive. Of course, the colonists did not know what was happening but they discovered that there was no problem growing Native American grapes, so they switched to these, uh, although with some unhappiness because they thought that French grapes produced better wines. Well, a possible explanation for the failure of the French vines to grow in America uh, came up in 1870, when American entomologist Charles Valentin Riley confirmed that phylloxera destroyed the roots of the grapevines by injecting a venom that then allowed them to feast on on the sap. And that venom just killed the root. So he wondered, could it be that American rootstocks had evolved resistance to the insect's venom, but French vines had not since the phylloxera aphids were not found in Europe? So Laliman and Brazil had an idea. Why not import American rootstock and graft shoots of French vines onto them? And that worked. The shoots grew, and they developed into vines that produced the desired grapes. So indeed, American roots did save the French wine industry. 
however, there, there was, uh, I guess, what we could call some poetic justice here, because it was also the importing of American plants that accidentally had introduced phylloxera to Europe in the first place. Anyway, phylloxera was not the only problem introduced by American botanical specimens. Various fungi capable of causing plant diseases also made their way across the ocean. And one of these was downy mildew, a fungus that stunts the growth of plants. The Bordeaux region of France was particularly affected, and Vintner sought help from University of Bordeaux botany professor Pierre-Marie Alexis Millardet. As he was walking through the vineyards, the professor made an interesting discovery. The vines that bordered the property and were close to the roads showed no mildew, while other vines were affected. So he questioned the growers, and he learned that they had a problem with passers-by helping themselves to the grapes, and those losses were significant enough to take some sort of action. So what did they do? They sprayed the vines with a mixture of copper sulfate and lime, because this results in a precipitate of copper hydroxide that makes the grapes taste bitter and also leaves this unappetizing film on the, on the product. So anyway, Millardet wondered if this was also the reason for the lack of mildew on these plants. So he tried it, and he found that this combination of chemicals indeed did prevent fungal spores from germinating. And this mixture came to be known as Bordeaux mixture. And when it was sprayed uh, on the vines before uh, germination, uh, then it prevented the growth of the, of the fungus. Interesting. But you know what? Not all fungi are hated by winemakers. There's one called Botrytis cinereal. It is better known as the noble rot, and it's welcomed by producers of the classic dessert vines like Sauterne in Bordeaux and some of the Rieslings in Germany. And perhaps the most famous of all of these is Tokai Asu from Hungary. Grapes infected with this fungus dehydrate and they shrivel, meaning that about a kilo of grapes are needed to yield just a few milliliters of juice. Since the fungus does not affect the sugar content, the resulting wine is very sweet. But it's not only the sweetness that's prized, it is the flavor that the fungus contributes. One of these compounds, phenylacetaldehyde, is very, very tasty. Uh, botrytis requires very special weather conditions, soil conditions, and of course, since not every grape is affected, the shriveled ones have to be hand-picked. So of course, this means that these uh, botrytized wines are expensive. And one of these, Essentia, which is from the Tokai region of Hungary, it's fermented for some eight years. It is the most expensive wine in the world, retailing for $40,000 a bottle. And uh, that's a gem of a wine. And the wine lovers, or enophiles, say that only a spoonful should be consumed at a time. And some of them say it should be on one's knees so that uh, appropriate homage is rendered to its incredible quality. And it is said that that quality is maintained in this uh, wine for 200 years. Well, I don't think I'll be around to comment on that, but uh, maybe by the year 2300, there will be some clever uh, radio announcer or columnist who will take up the challenge and uh, taste the 200-year-old uh, Tokai Asu, put it to a test, and uh, find out whether or not uh, it tastes good.
obviously I've not tasted the $40,000 bottle, but uh, last time I was in Hungary, which I guess was about seven years ago, I did visit the uh, Tokai uh, region and I did sample the, the dessert wine there, which apparently Louis XIV said was the wine of kings and the king of wines. And I was really intrigued by this, not because of Louis XIV, but as you know, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. And in one of the stories, in, in his last bow, uh, Holmes offers a glass to Watson and he says, a remarkable wine, Watson. I'm assured that it is from Franz Joseph's special cellar at the Schönbrunn Palace. So you know what? If Holmes recommended that wine, that was good enough for me. And uh, if that weren't enough, I also knew that in the uh, book of the uh, Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, uh, which I really like, especially because, of course, I like the musical made based on the book. Anyway, the Phantom offers a glass of Tokai on uh, Christine's visit to his lair below the Paris Opera. So uh, with that in mind, I uh, did taste the uh, Tokayasu, and uh, I'm not a great judge of wine. It, it went down very smooth. It was extremely uh, sweet. It, it was good. And it was sort of a delightful compliment to the veal paprikash and the langosh we were also served. So that's my take on the fungus. Now let's uh, get a take on the traffic that is going on out there. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. A couple of questions for you. And remember, 514-790-0800 is the number, or you can text to 514-800. And that, of course, goes for asking any science-related question that may be on your mind. But here are my questions. What is the most visited room in the world? Room means that it's indoors, obviously, and closed. And uh, the second question, what is the most popular psychoactive drug in the world? Most popular psychoactive drug and the most visited room in the world. If you know the answer to either one of those, give us a call, 514-790-0800. Okay, now down to a little bit of a discussion about this whole uh, uh, vaccine business and about... Uh, stretching the time between the first dose and the second dose. Of course, a lot of talk about this. Uh, experts, non-experts, pseudo-experts are all throwing their hat into the ring on this one. First thing to understand is that nobody can know this for sure. That nobody has an answer that can be guaranteed. Everyone is just making guesses. Some of these guesses, of course, are educated guesses. Some of, some of the guesses are just based on absolutely nothing. The only data that we have is the data that has been provided by Pfizer and by Moderna. And of course, that data uh, involves using the vaccine, uh, the two doses, either 21 or 28 days apart, depending on whether you're talking the Pfizer or, or the Moderna. It does not mean that there's zero information available for a single dose, because the subjects in the studies were monitored before they got the second dose. And it turns out that there is protection even before the second dose is, uh, is given. And uh, the estimate is about 50% protection after 10 days and about 
80, 90% protection after 20 days. The trouble is that all of these subjects got the second dose. So there is absolutely no data about long-term effects of having only one dose because there was no study population that had only one dose. That's why I'm saying that the only thing one can do is, is make a, a guess. And I mean, the guess is that the, that the protection does extend beyond just the 21 or the 28 days, but, but who knows how long. Most of the experts that I've spoken to, and I have my, you know, bevy of, of uh, ones that I rely on, uh, the prime one being Dr. Paul Offit, who I'm sure many of you have seen on CNN repeated times and on NPR, uh, because he really is one of North America's uh, experts on this, if not the world's experts. And uh, uh, luckily, I got to know him when we had invited him to be a speaker at uh, our Trotier Public Science Symposium a few years ago. And uh, uh, I got to know him quite well, and so he's quite happy to, to you know, answer my questions whenever I, I, I pose them. And uh, his view is that, you know, that 21 or the 28 days is, is not a hard number. In, you know, the, the effect of the vaccine does not wear off at midnight on, on you know, uh, on the 21st day if you don't get a second dose. His educated guess, and, and let me tell you, his guess is very educated. He's the inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, and, and uh, he's an advisor to the FDA on on. Uh, uh, on uh, vaccines. And he does not think that there's any uh, big issue if that second dose is extended by uh, two or three weeks. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he thinks it, it would not be reasonable to, to, uh, to extend it. There are others who say that, you no, know, there probably can be six, seven weeks of extension without having a, a major effect. But the fact is that we don't really know. Now here is the essence of the of the situation, the decision that has to be made. As I've told you many times, statistics do not apply to individuals, they apply to populations. So the question that we need to ask is if instead of giving people two doses, as the studies had uh, documented, what if everyone was just given a single dose and wait until the second dose becomes available? Even though a single dose may be less effective and may have shorter longevity, is it possible that we will still be saving more infections and consequently more lives because you're going to be giving it to a larger number of people? Certainly, if one single person asks the question, what should I do? The answer is, yes, you should follow the directions. You should follow exactly the advice that is based on the study that was done. You should get the first dose, and you should get the second dose 21 days later or 28 days later, depending on if it's the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. But that's a very different question from asking what is best for the population at large. Are you going to save more lives by giving a single dose to more people? And of course, you can uh, muster up some numbers to show that, yes, that, that even though it's only about 50% effective for a shorter time, you would end up saving more lives. So there's just no simple answer to this problem. However, I think that uh, there is uh, 
perhaps inappropriate uh, confidence that is being attributed to this vaccine in the first place. People thinking that that once they get the vaccine, or at least you know if they get the two doses of vaccine as 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 uh, intended, then it's kind of like a switch going on, and you can forget all about the problems and and that life will go back to normal. That's not going to happen because even if you as an individual get the get the vaccine and you are more or less protected to the extent of of ninety five percent. It doesn't solve the problem because there's still massive numbers of people who are, are, are not protected. And remember that even with 95% protection, 5% is not an in, of not protection is not an insignificant number. I think that uh, uh, instead of uh, you know jumping on uh, on a plane and going to Florida to get that first vaccine and not knowing when the second will be, I think it is much more prudent to wait until you can get the first shot here. It may be a couple of months. Well, until then, we take care. We try to distance, uh, you know, maintain physical distancing, wear the masks, and 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 whatever. At this stage, one or two months is is not uh, such a big uh, big difference. And uh, we will also possibly have other vaccines come online, the Johnson & Johnson may be just around the corner. We're also waiting for the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. So things will happen, but in the meantime, the trouble is that there's nothing really we can do except uh, try to abide by the public health recommendations and uh, keep to the distancing, keep to the, the, the bubble that means that you're not going to interact with anyone outside of your, your own home and your, you know, to people that you are, uh, are living with. And we just have to try to make the best of it. Uh, luckily, you know, we have plenty of entertainment available on, um, on TV. Uh, I don't know what we would do if we didn't have Netflix and all of these uh, uh, channels. And uh, also, thankfully, we now have hockey back. So we have that entertainment, and uh, last night's game, uh, pretty happy, five to one. Uh, they played well, so there is still some fun to be had. Anyway, we're going to take a little bit of a break. I'll be back to try to uh, get your answers to my questions about the most visited room in the world and the most popular psycho psychoactive drug in the world. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back. <laughs> Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, the two questions I left hanging, the most visited room in the world and the most popular psychoactive drug in the world. Let's go to Heidi. Heidi. Hello, I enjoy your show. Is it the Mona Lisa in Paris? No, it isn't. Very good guess. All right, Very have good a good guess. afternoon. Very good guess. Okay, let's go to uh, Nicholas. Hi there. All right, first time caller. Hi. Uh, my my answer, which I believe, and I'm answering this in a logical way regarding the most popular room in the world. Uh, most importantly, would have to know how to access these rooms in their native language. Would be the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a that's a good answer, but we are talking about one specific room. <laughs> Not the bathroom, eh? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, not just the general type of a room, okay. but one specific room. 
Okay. Well, uh, okay. At least I know in six languages. Where is the bathroom, please? <laughs> it's a very important uh, term to know. Yeah, I'll agree. All right, let's try Loomis. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had the. I was on the wrong uh, thought for a room because I was thinking. But uh, for, as far as the um, the drug, I was thinking um, coffee. Yes, it is. Caffeine, of course, is the most popular psychoactive drug in the world. You're you're quite right. And I'll think about the room. <laughs> okay, think about the nice room. Uh, let's go to Mike. Mike, what is the most visited room in the world? Mike did not know. All right, maybe Eliezer knows. Eliezer. Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, you know, the couple of answers that were given already, that's what I thought of. But when you said the room... Uh, it, it's not well defined what you mean by the room. Well, uh, the, the lady who suggested the room where the Mona Lisa is located was sort of on the right track. That's the kind of thing we're looking for. So it's, okay, okay. Once It's one specific location in the world. Oh, okay. What about the... the, 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 the I forgot the name of the church in, in, um, in uh, France. No, but that's a good guess. Also, that's a good guess. I mean, the, I forgot yeah, the, the, the church name. It's uh, the Notre Dame. Notre Dame. That's right. Now, yeah. that's sort of on the right track, but it's. Not, I, I, not, and not, actually, not I, I wouldn't really call that. What a, about the Welding Walls? But it's not a room. No, it's true. Yeah. Well, there is rooms there. If you know, I don't know. I'm sure you were there already. Yeah. But there is rooms there, like under. Inside. <laughs> yes, there is, and I visited there. It's absolutely no, no, fascinating. Okay. It's absolutely fascinating when you take the tunnel tour there. Yeah. Well, uh, there yeah. is a tunnel. That's right. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. There's yeah. quite a few rooms there, and there is under the tunnel too. Yes. It's a. Yeah. yeah it is amazing. Yeah. But okay. Thank that's you. That's not it. Okay. Thanks. All right. Uh, I think uh, Mark here has a different kind of question. Mark. Yes. Hi. Uh, hi. Nice, uh, thanks for taking the call. Um, I use a product called Iron Out. I buy it at Canadian Tire, and it's something that the, bat, the, the water at the cottage is hard water, and it leaves a rust stain in yes. the sink and the uh, tub. Yeah. And this product is really amazing. It's yeah. very, very hard to remove it. This product, you squirt it on, and you don't do it. You don't rub it or anything, and it just the stain disappears. Right. And I'm fascinated by it. Is it and that's my question. One is, what is it? How does it work? Well, the, the, the activating active ingredient in it is oxalic acid. And uh, oxalic acid is what we call a chelating agent. It binds uh, metals like, like iron and solubilizes them. So iron out uh, is mostly oxalic acid. It also, also contains some citric acid. That's also okay. a chelator for, for iron. And if I remember right, uh, it also contains sodium hydrosulfite because that also solubilizes the iron. But you're right. It is a, a very good product, and it works. And at the cottage, it then goes into the septic tank. It, it says on the label not to use in water filtration systems, but just a little bit of it occasionally into a septic tank. Is that really harmful? I don't think so. I don't think a, a little bit in a septic tank is harmful. Excellent. I appreciate this. Thank okay. you very much. Uh, very good. All right. Let me go to, is that Luke? Hello. Hi. Hi. So uh, would it be the Oval Office? It's not the Oval Office. No, no. I mean, the Oval Office is, uh, of course... I know it's an office. It's not really a room, but... I'm... No, it is. Oh, sure. Oval Office is a room. Absolutely. It's been there forever, so I'm... This, this room is a little bit larger than the Oval Office, and I'll tell you that uh, 30,000 visitors every day... About, um, hmm? about uh, 
What? I asked you a question about a chemical. I've been doing a lot of reading um, for these new high voltage batteries. Uh, if there's a, I guess a, 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 I guess a, a leak, it's the gas that it emits is a hydro, hydro. I I don't hear you very well. I don't know what kind of phone you're on. Okay, just a minute. Is that better? A little bit better. Okay, try it again. Is that better? Not much. Right. Try okay, but try to try your question again. Okay, um the yeah, lithium ion batteries for the high voltage vehicles that are presently here and coming. Yeah. If there's an internal leak in the battery it will release a, a gas, a hydro uh what is the gas again? I don't remember. Hydro I don't remember the gas, sorry. Um, yes, the, uh, it's, it's a hydro, sorry, I don't remember the name. You, like, when a, it's a poisonous gas, and from what I understand, if you breathe it, it can cause uh, lung damage and possibly heart damage. From a, ba from a battery? Yeah, lithium-ion batteries, the new high-voltage batteries that are coming out for electric vehicles. Released as a gas? If there is a meltdown inside the battery, if there, if, if, like, the battery becomes defective. Because uh, there, there is liquid inside each cell, and if the liquid basically leaks out, it can cause uh, pressure inside the battery, and it can release a gas, a hydro... I forget the name of the... Uh, hydrogen... What is it? Hydrogen... Hydrogen fluoride, maybe. Yeah, hydrogen fluoride. Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, hi hydrogen hydrogen fluoride is a nasty, nasty uh, gas, but... Yeah, I was reading a lot about it, and I actually work in the industry, and I'm just trying to catch up with all the technology, and uh, I was reading the, basically the health concerns behind it. It's actually very dangerous if you breathe the gas, and it's, from what I understand, too, it's an odor. You can't smell it, can't see it, so... Yeah, but I, I mean, I would guess that the amount of hydrogen fluoride released from a battery would be very little. Uh, I don't know. I, I have to look into that, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that what you're talking about is hydrogen fluoride because that's really the only thing that, that makes sense from a lithium-ion battery. Yes. So uh, I was just concerned um, from what you know, uh, what, what are the health risks behind it if you actually... Uh, oh, hydrogen fluoride is extreme, extremely toxic. But uh, but you have to remember that uh, you know the cornerstone of toxicology is that only the dose makes the poison, so uh, we have to look into just how much hydrogen fluoride is released and and what the environment is where it is being released. You know what the uh, what the ventilation is. Okay, I'll I'll try to see what uh, what is published on this. Okay, interesting interesting uh, item to bring uh, bring up though. So yeah. Take a look at hydrogen fluoride release from uh, from batteries. Okay, all right. So I am still looking for the uh, answer to the question about the uh, uh, most visited uh, indoor uh, room. I, it is a large room. I mean, it's much bigger than the Oval Office, but uh, uh, I think one would still call it a a big room although uh, you know the question is where does one draw the line at what, what is a room like i don't think the inside of notre dame is 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 a room anyway we'll see if anyone comes up with that uh, but first we have to take a break we'll check traffic you're listening to the dr joe show
science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let's go to Brian. Brian. Yep. What do you think? Uh, in the presidential suite. No. Okay. I, I had I, my I had I had my other my own. That was my wife's idea. What's yours? <laughs> Library of Congress. Uh, no. Again, okay. I I wouldn't really say that that's a room. It's a well, okay, but it's not that. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me try Tim. Tim. Uh, Tim, I guess had the same idea. So let's go to Valerie. Valerie. Yeah. Hi. Uh, how about the Sistine Chapel? Yes, it is the Sistine Chapel. Great. Yeah, Sistine Chapel. Thirty thousand people visit it uh, every day uh, in the tour season, which is an amazing uh, number. And uh, you know that uh, they tell you no photography. There's the guards always yelling out, "No photography, no photography." Do you know why that is? No idea. You don't want to ruin the paintings with the lights from a camera. That's what a lot of people say, but that's not that's not the case. That's not it. Okay. That's not it. What what happened was that uh, when they were restoring it, and uh, I guess this goes back to the 1980s, right? Because uh, uh, the Sistine Chapel was uh, was uh, uh, totally lit with candles over the years, so there was a lot of soot, which which basically it's it's almost it almost obscured uh, Michelangelo's brilliant uh, paintings. And I remember that because I was there before the restoration, and you could hardly see. You know, they would point out to you where Adam was and God was and all that, but it was very difficult to see. But after the restoration, it was it was fantastic. And that restoration involved uh, four years of work, people lying on their backs on scaffoldings uh, with, with toothbrushes and Q-tips cleaning, cleaning it. Anyway, uh, the Vatican had made a, a, an arrangement with Nippon Television in uh, in Japan for exclusive rights to any picture taken during the restoration process and and after, and that's the reason that photography was uh, was not allowed because uh, they had come to this arrangement with Nippon that they were the only ones allowed to to uh, document this restoration with uh, with pictures. Uh, that agreement is no longer uh, uh, in vogue. Uh, so uh, today, uh, you are allowed to take pictures, but they discourage it. But the reason they discourage it is because it allows people to linger in the in the chapel, and they don't want that. They they want as many people to move through as uh, as possible. But uh, uh, it's an amazing place to be. It is the most popular uh, room uh, in in the world, and. Um, Tremendous difference, uh, you know, as I, I saw both before and after the restoration. After the restoration, it's just brilliant. You can see everything. But you know that there there are some uh, art historians and art experts who were uh, against the restoration because they said that now it's no longer uh, Michelangelo's original work because, uh, you know, it was cleaned and touched up in places, etc. But at least now you can see it. Okay, so now you know what is the most visited room in the world. All right, uh, I want to tell you another, uh, I think, uh, rather interesting uh, story. And this also has to do with the Pope and the Vatican. Uh, and today you wouldn't expect the Pope or indeed the Queen of England or the President of the U.S. to endorse a commercial product, would you? 
But back in the late 1800s, two popes, Pius X and Leo the uh, Thirteenth, along with Queen Victoria and President McKinley, went on record as devoted fans of Van Mariani, widely advertised as a strengthener of the entire system and renovator of the vital forces. And this was the brainchild of Angelo Mariani. Uh, he also promoted it as a remedy for brain exhaustion, nervous depression, sleeplessness, and voice fatigue. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that famous actresses like Sarah Bernhardt, noted writers like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, and even the wizard of Menlo Park, Thomas Edison himself, extolled the virtues of this remarkable beverage. After all, it did have one interesting, attractive, and active ingredient. You know what that was? Cocaine. Angelo Mariani was a French entrepreneur with a background in chemistry. While working in a Paris pharmacy, he became interested in the potential healthful properties of the coca plant and meticulously gathered whatever scientific information was available at the time. He also experimented with growing the plant in greenhouses and tried various preparations himself. Finally, Mariani decided that the best way of delivering cocaine's kick without its usual bitterness was to steep the leaves in Bordeaux wine. This turned out to be a lucky combo because ethanol improves the experience produced by cocaine, probably through the formulation of a metabolite known as coca ethylene. No wonder that people found their fatigue chased away and their aches and pains banished just like the ads claimed. And there were ads aplenty. Indeed, this is where Mariani's real genius lay. In addition to posters and newspaper inserts, he compiled the Album Mariani, a collection of celebrity and physician testimonials, each one accompanied by an artist's sketch of the proponent. Eventually, there were, believe it or not, 14 volumes filled with wonderful accounts about the benefits of Van Mariani. As a result, the beverage developed a huge following and made Angelo Mariani into the biggest importer of coca leaves in the world. Also made him into the first cocaine millionaire. People were now drinking the beverage not only as a remedy for ailments, but also as a quick pick-me-up. So it is little wonder that Van Mariani began to spawn a variety of imitations, including French wine coca, invented by an American pharmacist, John Pemberton, who, in addition to cocaine, also introduced an extract of the African cola nut on account of its caffeine content. Pemberton was also an advertising wizard. French wine coca was the remedy for nervous trouble, dyspepsia, all chronic and wasting diseases, and was a wonderful invigorator of the sexual organs. It was guaranteed to leave consumers satisfied. With prohibition looming in the South, Pemberton reformulated his beverage, replacing the alcohol with soda water and adding sugar, vanilla, and various flavors derived from fruits and spices. Coca-Cola appeared as a soft drink at soda fountains in 1886. Rest, as they say, is history. Although by the time that it first appeared as a soft drink, uh, there were essentially no remnants of cocaine in the, uh, in the beverage. But 
there is the interesting history of Van Mariani as it eventually led to uh, uh, Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola today, of course, still owes some of its flavor to the coca plant. Although, uh, obviously, the cocaine is first extracted from the leaves of the plant before they are used to formulate the, uh, the beverage. What happens to all of the cocaine that is extracted from the leaves, nobody seems to know. That is it. We are once again run, run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>